this material tonight of your existence, that if there's anyone here who from time to time uh, might doubt. And God, I think it, at times we all have our doubts, even though we may not even recognize it, that, that some of those doubts would go away. And Lord, that you would show us that you in fact have given us the exact amount of knowledge about yourself in Scripture so that we can know you and know you truly even if it's not fully. And Lord, I thank you for um, sending your son. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for paying for our sins. And we trust you in all things, and I pray that you would guide our conversation tonight. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Okay, so again, welcome everybody, and if you're if you're joining us online, and if you've got a question, then you can put that in the YouTube comments. Hey, Scott G. And we can see that question. So I've got YouTube up, and you can put a comment in, and I'll be able to, I'll be able to see it. So we're going to talk tonight about the knowability of God. How knowable is God. So, so religion is something that we can engage in, but we can't do it with, with like complete certainty. And here's what I mean. Is anybody in this room infallible? Okay. What's that, Jared? Jared says it's a matter of perspective. Are you saying that in your own perspective you're infallible, Jared? We can ask Cherie about that, and I think she might have a different answer. Um, so here's the weird thing about what, what anybody does who teaches or preaches the Word of God. We're infallible people. I'm sorry, we're fallible. <laughs> yeah, unlike the rest of you. We're fallible people communicating infallible truth. And that in and of itself can be, it can be kind of problematic because I'm sharing as a fallible person things that are absolutely, we believe, to be true. Um, and when we interpret God, we run into the same thing because we are fallible people trying to interpret a perfect God. We're not just trying to interpret God, but we're trying to interpret reality, trying to interpret life. And if you know, if you've been side by side with someone and you've heard someone else say something, later on you'll get together and sometimes the two of you don't agree on what it was you just heard someone else say, right? That can happen. So we run into this issue whenever we start talking about God. And some people would say for that reason alone, um, it's ridiculous to try to approach the subject of God. Um, and it's better to almost be agnostic in the sense that God is just unknowable. He's so far and above us that we can't really know him. God's unknowable, and all we can do is really just be in awe of him. So what is it that people are afraid of? In other words, why do people see danger in trying to know God more? They think you're going to bring him down, that you're going to uh, put him on a human level, and then you're going to lose aspects of him. Okay, good. Any other thoughts? You might misunderstand him. Okay. You would do things that are abhorrent in his eyes because we wouldn't be doing his will. I mean, that's a real danger. Even in, you know, Kevin Rise and I have talked about this. It's about how scary it can be to preach because you know you're going to be held accountable for things that you say. Um, good. Yeah, we humanize God. We've got to be careful how we explain him. So does God want us to know him? All right, I would agree. That's why, obviously, I wouldn't be taking the time to do this if I didn't think that was true. 
So let's talk about this question for a minute. Why do some people object to the study of God? So here's some objections. Um, some would say it is nonsensical to attempt to define God in human terms for two reasons. First of all, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite and therefore should not try to define him. You know, again, like we said, we're bringing him down um, into human terms. And then secondly, that human language will always be inadequate and therefore misleading. Now, is there some truth in this? Well, let's just look at some verses. So, Psalm 140, I'll go ahead and read these and just listen to these verses and how um, God is described. First of all, Psalm 145.3, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and His greatness is unsearchable. Well, you know, you may deduct from that that His greatness is beyond our comprehension, and, and it says it's unsearchable. So an argument would be, well, why then search out God if, he is, if His greatness is unsearchable? And then 1 Corinthians 2, 10 through 12. Uh, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person, which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now, we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So again here, it's, it's telling us um, who knows a person's thought except the spirit of that person. So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. So you know, again, some people would argue that verse is telling us God is so great, we can't possibly even understand him, so why try? There's aspects to his existence that we just can't understand. And then Psalm 147.5 um, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. Now, are we beyond measure? No, we are not beyond measure. We can be measured, but God is immense. He's not, you know, he's not in space as we know it or time. He's not bounded by space and time. And then Romans eleven thirty three. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So you've got all of these aspects of God, his greatness, his incomprehensibility, his understanding, and his unfathomability. And these are, these are arguments that have been used. This is why you shouldn't seek God out. And by the way, this is very much the way the Greek Orthodox Church thinks. We'll talk about that more in a little bit. But there's a reason you don't find like Greek Orthodox catechism, like Greek Orthodox uh, doctrines written out because they're very cautious. Like, well, we can't start using human language to describe God because we'll just fall way short. He's unsearchable. He's unfathomable. So why even why go down that route? So. OK, they are descriptive words right on. Somebody, somebody's had their Mountain Dew tonight. Well, think about this question for just a minute. What's it like for God to describe himself to us? Have you ever thought about that? Does he know all of our limitations? Does he know what we're capable of comprehending? Okay. So God, he also understands that a description of himself to us is going to be incomplete. Um, so let's look at this. So we've, we've looked at this before. Everything above the ark, the arch, is transcendent, it's in timeless eternity, it is uncreated. Then everything below is time-bound and created. So we're below trying to understand what's above, and he's describing himself to the finite, okay? And we're able to make connections, but that's partially because of faith. And we believe 
a lot of these things to be true. Even though we don't completely understand, we must be able to believe without seeing. And then Paul, yeah, Paul is also going to say that the gospel is foolishness. All right? Why does, why does Paul say the gospel is foolishness to men? Okay, we can't understand it. At least maybe we can't fully understand it. Because there's things that we have to take on faith. So if you, for example, were explaining to someone that we believe that God is three in one, I mean, is that, a, is that an easy concept to try and understand that we believe that we're monotheistic, we only believe in one God, but he's eternally existed as three persons? Or that Jesus is fully God and fully man? We don't think he's half God, half man. We think we believe he's fully God, fully man. So these are concepts that we take on faith that we really can't even totally comprehend ourselves. So when Paul's saying that these things are foolishness, he's saying these things are going to be incomprehensible to someone who has not approached it in faith. There is this faith element that we can't get rid of. But, and we'll talk about this more, it's impossible to function in a world without the use of faith. Uh, you know, my son was asking me about, he was, he's been asking me a slew of questions lately. And he's already hit the, the bounds of what dad knows. It didn't take long. <laughs> he was asking questions like, can you, he said, dad, how much fossil, how much carbon dioxide is given off by fossil fuels? And I thought, where in the world did you get these ideas? So he's watching some of these YouTube videos that they make. You know, they're, they're, they've got these cartoon videos, but I was like, I, I don't know. <laughs> now, if you were to ask me, you know, uh, about a car engine or something like that, and, and what, if you were to say, what does a car engine do? I'd say, well, it makes the car go. And he might be satisfied with that answer, but as he gets older, he's going to learn more about cars. Oh, it doesn't just make the car. Oh, it also generates electricity that you can run your car. Oh, it also has a, a pump. So... We add what he would take on faith in the beginning, he grows and understands more as he goes along. And it's similar with us. We take some things on faith in the beginning, and we keep growing as we go along. Let's keep going. Okay. Can the finite being us comprehend the infinite? So number one, the finite cannot comprehend. These are, remember, these are objections to the knowability of God. So this goes back to, um, I'm sorry, I'm seeing on my screen. Can the finite comprehend the infinite? One argument would be um, the finite cannot comprehend the infinite and therefore should not define him. Now, what's wrong with this statement? Let's just think about the statement. This is actually one of the self-defeating statements. But what's self-defeating about it? It's sort of saying, yeah, you, you shouldn't, shouldn't try to think about God and, okay. Okay. Then you shouldn't do it. Okay, can't understand astrophysics, but you doesn't mean it's, it stops you. But there's an element of this statement that's almost like one of those, it's like saying absolute truth does not exist. What's the problem with saying absolute truth does not exist? I'm making an absolute truth statement. So this is making an absolute statement about God. What is the absolute statement it's making about God? That God is incomprehensible. Okay, so it's making this absolute statement that God is incomprehensible. But that's a claim to comprehend something about God, that he is incomprehensible. And therefore, it's one of these, these self-defeating statements. Yeah, it's like circular reasoning. So that's a problem there. And John Hanna said, God reveals himself to us truly, but not fully. Now, what does that mean? God reveals himself to us truly but not fully. Somebody get the mic. Somebody's itching to answer this. Have you got a microphone there? 
We got somebody, Jared, you look like you're ready to take a stab at this. Somebody give Jared that microphone. What that's the question. What is that? What does that mean? We can understand we God reveals himself to us truly, but not fully. Okay, there's got to be a divine mystery. It doesn't sound like it's on. Is it? Uh, is the little screen on? Okay, keep go test. Wow. <laughs> So I think, Jerry, I think what you're saying is that you have to even comprehend something to the point that you realize how little comprehension you have. But to understand how little comprehension you have of something, you've got to get to a certain level of comprehension about that thing to which you're trying to comprehend. Is that a... Okay, something along those lines. Okay, could you hand the microphone to Mr. Oaks? Okay. Yes, I... I'm with you. I, and I think I, you know, I like what you said that God has revealed himself. Everything God has revealed about himself is true, right? But has he revealed everything about himself? No. No, he hasn't. And I would, yeah, he has given us everything we can comprehend. But even, and I think probably even more than we can comprehend. Are there things you come across in scriptures like, I just don't know that I can really totally comprehend? I'm still working out God's sovereignty and, and man's responsibility. And I think most of us are still working that out. And when, when people, as a matter of fact, when people say they've got it figured out, I'm like, I, you know, I don't know that I buy it. Not sure I'm believing you on that one. Yeah, we don't get the whole picture. Um, but this is true about everybody we know. Just think about, do you know every single thing about your spouse? Everything. <laughs> I'll never forget my dad. He told me, he said, I, I said, you know, dad, there's some things that, that Melissa does. I said, I just, sometimes I don't understand. He said, now don't even try, son. He said, just don't even try. Don't try to. <laughs> yeah, it's true in every relationship. You don't fully know every. You're constantly learning more about the person you're married to. And you're constantly understanding more about God. As time goes on, we get more and more. And we won't ever get it fully. Um, but I love that statement by John and Hannah. By the way, this is... Uh, sorry to put that up. This is John and Hannah. This is me and him at a Christmas party back about 13 years ago. He's the one in the middle. Chaplain Bill Bryan's on the end. I think I had a little bit of hair left on top of my head at that point. But um, he was one of the professors I had at Dallas Seminary. And I wanted to name drop. Okay, moving on. Um, Wayne Grudem, even in the age to come, when we are freed from the presence of sin, we will never be able to fully understand God or any one thing about him. We have true knowledge from Scripture, even though we do not have exhaustive knowledge. Uh, and even if you study heaven, you know, whenever I do a funeral for somebody, I'll talk about heaven. And there's this one part I get to where if you want to understand heaven, you've got to understand what it's not. Because Scripture talks about heaven in a way that, he's, that it's being described as what it's not. It's described as an, an inheritance, but what kind of an inheritance? Well, it's one that's not, it's incorruptible. Um, and what? And undefiable, yeah. 
So it's all these things. This is what it's not. Because you hit this limit that, that human language has and be able to comprehend the infinite. Uh, and even in heaven, this is, this is something that fascinates me. Even when we get to heaven, are we going to immediately know everything? How do you know everything there is to know about an infinite God? Heaven will be a continued growth in knowledge. And at what point do you hit the point where you know everything about an infinite God? You don't get there. So as you, as you journey through heaven, it's going to be a constant unfolding and understanding of who God is. And it's just going to go on and on and on. See, this is why you don't have to worry about getting bored in heaven. Um, even Christ, you know, do we know everything about Christ? So you hit this verse at the end of the book of John, John 21, 25. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. So what is John telling us about Christ himself? Yeah, he's saying really it's impossible to know everything there is about this person, Christ. There's so much to him that all the books in the world couldn't, couldn't hold it all. Okay, number two, human language will always be inadequate and therefore misleading. These are reasons we shouldn't try and get to know God. So let me ask this. Uh, what do you think of when you say that God is a person? So just in your, just close your eyes and think about this for a minute if you want. Think about God as a person. What images come into your head when you think of God as a person? What do you see? You see Jesus? Okay, what does Jesus look like? Two arms, two legs. You think, yeah, maybe probably ears and eyes and nose and, and all those things. Okay. Any, any other thoughts on that? Got a nice beard? Could be. Had to have. This scripture talks about his beard. Okay. So you think, yeah, you think about two eyes and, and a nose, and, um, and those are set in our mind, but, but uh, he has a personality. Okay, now that's interesting. Intelligence, a will. Okay. Emotions. So now we're talking about like non-physical attributes of, and maybe maybe the right word is personhood. That God has personhood. He's got a will. He's got emotions. Okay, good. But you know, they didn't start using that word person to describe God until like the fourth century. So hundreds of years have passed by before they started referring to these you know, the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, as these different persons. And they used lots of words. Um, they finally arrived at that. But even the meaning of personhood now doesn't necessarily mean what person did back then. The definition has changed a little bit. Now, why would the definition of person change in modern times as, as it would have from back 3rd, 4th century? Why is it necessary? Yeah. Why was it necessary to, to change the definition of person between now and back then? Well, we have more knowledge. Well, what kind of knowledge? And why would that change the definition of person? When does a, when does a person become a person? And why does that language matter? Okay, we say we, we've defined it. Why was it necessary to define it? Okay, because it's about the abortion issue. It became necessary to define a starting point. So we were going to say, well, now we'd say a person 
uh, has a starting point. Now, why is that problematic when you start talking about God? Because he doesn't have a starting point. So it's interesting. You've got to think about how language changes and how language can even start to change your theology about God. So it might be that in the future somebody decides, well, based on modern times, we need to come up with a different word to describe God, maybe as having three uh, distinct consciences, consciousnesses, maybe. Now, it takes a lot of scrutiny before you, because now you've got to really scrutinize what do you mean by consciousness. Well, I think we mean that you know, the thought Jesus has his own way of thinking, and God the Father has his own way of thinking, and the two aren't necessarily, they, they, they have their own thoughts. But you see how it becomes necessary, how language also determines our theology and what we believe. So language can confine us. And, uh, and this is something like the Greek, the Greek Orthodox Church struggled with, and the Roman Catholic Church, and we talked about this way early on, that you had the Roman Catholic Church, you know, in the west around Italy, you had the, the Greek Orthodox Church over in the east around Greece, and they had different ideas about who God was, they used different language about God, and in the east, they, again, they didn't think you could define God. The east, they were the artists, and in the west, the Roman Catholic Church, they were like the engineers. They wanted to define everything about God and the East didn't want to define anything about God. Um, so they thought, well, you can only say, what, the, the Greek Orthodox Church said, well, you can only say what God is not. Well, and then what do you think of when you say that God is spirit? kind of like think of like just some misty smoke floating around or something like that you know something like if you're burning incense it's tough to comprehend that one okay let's keep going um so let me read this while it is true that human language has its limits god chose to express himself within those limits in his word we should not try to force his revelations of himself to do more than intended. So in the early church, they came up with this thing. They called it the analogy of language. Uh, and that meant simply that they believed that language was capable of communicating, that you could communicate truth through spoken words and things that exist in Reality. For example, if I were to say that God is great, does that describe everything there is to know about God? It doesn't. But it kind of gets us moving in a certain direction. Like, okay, God is great. Well, that kind of takes me this way. If I were to say God is bad, can God is great and God is bad move me in the same direction about who God is? No. Depends so, your definition of bad. My definition of bad? So not that one. Not bad as in cool. You know, no. We're showing our age here, Scott. But um, bad as in ungood, that kind of bad. So we can use language about God, and God uses language about himself so we can understand him truly but not fully. So that would prevent us from having some wrong pre-heaven understanding of God. In other words, we don't want to just get to heaven and get there and find out like, wow, you know, God, you're, so your understanding of righteousness and my understanding of righteousness are like two totally and completely different things. Oh, you know, God, what you're calling good and evil are, it's completely different than what I understand to be good and evil. So we are given communicative language about God so we don't have these big misunderstandings of what God calls good and what we call good and what God calls evil and, and what we call evil, even though we don't fully get it. So, like, do we, um, do we know what love is? Not really. Not really. 
we wouldn't, if we didn't have the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't be able to do this. Okay, I, I'm with you. The Holy Spirit does supernaturally even enable us to believe, right? But, but you can also read a textbook definition of love that I think would not be so different than a biblical definition of love. So I think there's some commonality there. Uh, I think we do have some idea of what love is, right? We've got spouses and parents and kids, and we know the bond there. Do we know what God's love is like? Okay, we got a bit, right? We've got some idea of what God's love is like because he told us what, <clears throat> and he showed us what his love is like. Um, he sent Jesus. Is, is our kind of love and loving, is it exactly like God's kind of love and loving? There's some differences there. Because God's love is perfect, it's abundant. Um, so there's a difference. And then what, what characterizes Christ? If you're going to characterize the love of Christ, how would you describe it? What's it like? It's 100% selfless. We're never completely selfless. Good. Unconditional. Good. Sacrificial. Yeah. That's the kind of love that, that really characterizes the love of Christ. It's, it's a sacrificial love. So we have some idea of what that is, but as we go down this path, as we uh, are being more and more made into the likeness of Christ, we also grow an understanding of what, what this is, this kind of love, who God is. Um, so it helps us understand, you know, this biblical, under, this, this biblical understanding that God has given us of himself. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Did somebody just take a... That sounds like a flash, but I'm not clicking. Yeah. I just, there was a flash somewhere. Okay. I'm not crazy. So we boast of understanding and know him and, and we delight in these attributes of God. So he expects us to have some understanding of what these words mean, right? Because he's describing himself this way. And we can understand him more this way so that we can even boast about it in this way. So we do get God in some degree truly but not fully. The exciting part of this is we still don't fully know the depths of this. Okay, let's keep going. Question, why do people often object to the study of God's existence? Does anywhere in the Bible, does it argue that God exists? It really doesn't. I mean, there's an understanding when you get to the Bible that, um, that you're accepting it by faith, that God is, is real. Um, you know, there's not these, these big uh, arguments about it. But what if you said, or what if somebody said to you, what if you said, prove to me that God exists? <coughs> prove it to me. Prove to me that he doesn't? That's a fair question. Uh, okay. That eliminates faith. Yes, Judy. Let's get, say, say it twice. In Romans 1, um, it says, look around you, mm -hmm. the creation. God has, who has created this? If you don't believe in God, that's my paraphrase. It's probably not very good. But the creation exists and tells of him and his greatness. But there was like a big bang. I mean, a big bang, and it was all here. 
I mean, are there people that believe that? Who made the bang? I, I don't know. Do, do you know who made the bang? It could have been Vishnu or it could have been some Norse god or... Okay, let's keep, let's keep moving forward. So what would be some objections to the study of God's existence? So some objections to the study of God's existence. First of all, you cannot prove beyond a doubt that God exists. Like some people are going to say this. You can't prove by rational arguments that God exists. Or secondly, that God must be accepted on the basis of faith and not on the basis of evidences. Third, even if you prove that God does exist, you cannot prove that the God of the Bible is the one true God. Like, like okay, you prove a creator, all right. That doesn't mean that uh, Jesus is who he says he was. That just means that someone created. That doesn't necessarily get me all the way to Christianity. That gets me to Islam, or it gets me to Judaism, or it gets me to Christianity. And then fourth, that everybody, everyone already believes he exists. Some just deny it. Therefore, there is no need to prove that he exists. So Psalm 14.1, the fool says in his heart, the fool says in his heart there is no God. They are, they are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. So the psalm here is just kind of ironically saying, look, it's only a fool who says there is no God. Unless you're a fool, you believe God exists. So therefore, what's... The, and then why try to prove something to somebody who's a fool? Okay, so let's take these. First of all, you cannot prove beyond a doubt that God exists. So why bother? It's an issue of faith. And we interpret things fallibly anyway... And we introduce fallibility when we try to um, prove something. So what do you think about this comment? What do you think? You cannot prove beyond a doubt that God exists. Is that true? Okay. 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 Any other thoughts? That's good. We're going to talk about what you just said a little bit more. Well, one of the questions is, what kind of proof are you looking for? I heard this on a talk show recently. A guy was saying, show me, the, show me the data that God exists. Okay, well, what kind of data are you exactly trying to take in to prove that God exists? So there's really, there's like four different kinds of proofs. Um, one is, is mathematical proof, which you could say is true by analysis. So, for example, it's like proving, well, 2 plus 2 equals 4. Well, by definition, 2 plus 2 equals 4. It's by the definition of what 2 means, the definition of what plus means, the definition of equals. 2 plus 2 equals 4. Well, that's mathematical proof. It's really, it's not deniable. It's just true. It is, as they say, it is what it is. Um... But, it, you know, it, like a triangle. Can a triangle have four sides? Well, then it's a square. So by definition of triangle, it, a triangle has three sides. Well, can you prove God this way? Not really. You can't do it. It's like, you know, it's like, can I prove who my mother is mathematically? No. You, know, you say, well, what about DNA? Well, that's still not mathematical proof. That's statistics and scientific proof. So we can prove things mathematically, but you can't prove God mathematically. Well, what about, um, oh, here's a quote. Where'd that come from? I think I zapped a bunch of, uh-oh, uh-oh. I think I zapped some slides I wasn't supposed to. Do you have one that says logical proof? Okay. 
just ignore the slides for just a minute. I didn't have, I don't think I had logic. No. Okay. Well, I'll just speak, but just pay attention to your books for a minute. Okay, logical proof. Logical uh, proof talks about you know, what's reasonable, and you can do this through something called a syllogism. So a popular one is um, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. So these are premises. Now, is that true, what I just said? Okay, it is. So how could you go about proving God this way? Could you? Could you come up with those like three statements to prove God? Like it's a two premises, then a deduction. You know, I'm reasoning through. Could you do that for God? Can anybody come up with three statements? I have some written down that I got from somebody else. One would be all existence is creation. All creation demands a creator. Therefore, there's a creator. What about that? Okay. It depends on, just like if you go back to the first one, I said all men are mortal. Is that true? Do we know that's true beyond any shadow of a doubt? Forever and all eternity, all men are mortal. So what do you do with those guys? Okay. All right. So these depend on how true that first one is. So this, if, if you say all existence is creation, well, wait a minute. Is it? Do we know beyond a shadow of a doubt that all existence is creation? Okay. So maybe that's not so true. If God exists and he's not creation. Well, let's try it again. Uh, what about this one? All things um, have a beginning. The universe has a beginning. All things began. Is that true? So maybe, so now we've got a problem again. So this logical proof isn't really going to work well with our dilemma trying to prove that God exists. Okay, let's try another one. Oh, that's right, it's not up there. The third one. Uh, is empirical proof. This is like scientific, this is observable science. You use a scientific um, method. You know, you observe things with your senses. You can taste it, feel it, smell it, touch it. Um, and there's evidence that, well, creation's complex, and you can make these observations about creation. Um, but are these infallible ways of determining God exists? Well, our senses can trick us, can't they? All right, so let's go to the last one. And it's not up there again, even if I keep clicking it. We're going to talk about insanity right now. Moral proof. So this is like the go-to one. Uh, this, and, and really, this is what we live by. That this is the way we make our decisions. Our justice system is based on this idea of moral proof. In other words, what is demanded based on the compelling conclusions of the evidences. This is reality. This is how we live, even if we don't want to admit it, in this moral proof category. So let's unpack it a little bit. Because to act against moral certainty is what we would call insanity. Has anybody seen the movie What, what About Bob? Anybody ever seen the movie What About Bob? So what's Bob like? He's nuts. Why is he nuts? Why would we call Bob nuts? So Bob, if you haven't seen the movie, he's like a germaphobe. He won't touch a doorknob without like a cloth. He won't. He doesn't want to go outside because there's there's germs outside. So he kind of wants to stay inside. Kind of like who's? I was thinking Howard. Sort of like Howard Hughes. Um. So. You know, he won't go outside because he could get a germ and he could get sick and die. Now, is it true? Is it possible that you could go outside and get a germ and get sick and die? So it's possible, okay? 
It's possible. So if I were to, to say that, you know, I'm going to live in complete isolation, and I'm never going to go outside again, I'm going to lock myself in a room and not let anybody in. Because it's, is it possible I could die if I go out? Is, is that sane? Would, would, it's possible, but it's greater if I go outside. We would say that's insane. You, you can't function that way. So you know, when people demand this type of proof, they're crazy. Okay, so again, we're back in this moral proof. We can determine by moral proof. As a matter of fact, it's not at all hard to believe that God exists. Even as I was going through this, I don't know if I had even realized the depth to which God has provided evidence of himself. So when people are demanding the kind of proof that they say they're demanding, you know, show me proof that God exists, and I'll believe it. In essence, they're acting insane. Um, you can prove that God exists. This is back to what you said, Trevor. You can prove that God exists in the same way you prove anything else, but not more. So, all of these different kinds of proofs. Yeah, it's like, so moral proof has to do with what is demand. I'm going to read something here. Demanded by the cumulative case argument, in a courtroom, the murder weapon found on the accused may not be enough to convict, but this, along with his fingerprints on the weapon, a motive for the crime, and witnesses who saw him commit the crime would be enough and would require a moral conclusion that the accused is guilty. So morally, we would believe there is absolutely no reason not to believe that God exists. Every evidence is there. Nothing can appear on its own. Let's keep going. I can tell you're not totally convinced. This is the quotes. No arguments that appeal to facts from the real, real world can furnish mathematically certain conclusions, but while empirical proofs fall short of certainty, and that's the scientific proof, all factual decisions in life are based on such proofs. Historians, and indeed all of us, must make decisions constantly, and the only adequate guide is probability. If we define proofs as probable occurrence based on empirically produced experiences and subject to the test of reasonable judgment, then we can say the arguments prove the existence of God. In other words, what they're saying is you can prove that God exists just as you can prove that anything exists. If somebody asks, tell me, prove to me, how, how can you prove to me that God exists? How can I prove to you that Augustus Caesar existed? The same way that Christ, that Christ was on earth. Um, each of us must weigh the arguments. Each of us is ultimately responsible for our own final decision. And this is, this is where we talk about it takes the power of the Holy Spirit to actually persuade someone to believe this. In other words, good luck trying to persuade someone who's just dead set against believing that God exists. You can provide them all the proof in the world. There's some poetic way of saying this. I can't remember it, but yeah. A person convinced against their will is of the same opinion still. That's it. Yeah. Okay. Comment. Comment, yes. The key word there, I think, is probability in that last thing. Because we, we put all the evidence together and we say, what is the probability of this being true based on what I know and have seen and have read? And we all come to different conclusions on what that probability really is. What is the probability of the universe existing in its complexity based on what we know about anything? Of it just appearing on its own? What's the, what's the probability? That's tough. All right. Two, 
God must be accepted on the basis of faith, not on the basis of evidences. Is that true or false? False. How many say false? How many say true? How many don't know? Both? So we tend to do this. We tend to think, well, here is the, sp- like, here's the spirit stuff, and over here is like the physical stuff. Here's the thinking, and, and here's like the faith. And, it, and, we try, and, and we tend to keep these two things separate, but are they meant to be separated like that? They are not meant to be separated like that. They're not supposed to be separated like that because God gave us a brain. He gave us a heart, and he gave us a brain. Uh, so we think that faith and reason are just two completely separate ideas. So, true or false? We'll say false. It's not like supernatural goes here and, and science goes here. A um, couple of reasons here. Uh, God has given us a mind and expects us to think. God has always provided evidences for the faith. And if this were true, then all religions are equal and religious experience is equally valid. Now think about that one for a minute. Because if it's faith with no evidence, if it's faith with no evidence, then what are you doing? You're just blindly selecting a particular religion and there's no more evidence for one than there is for another. You're choosing what appeals to you. Maybe I can do something over here that I can't do over here. But that's, that, but that's a problem. I don't, and I don't think God intended us to do that. So the Reformers came up with the definition of faith. You know, one of the cries of the Reformation was sola fide, you know, by faith alone. And they said, well, if we're going to make that kind of a declaration, we've got to talk about what exactly do we mean when we're, start, when we're talking about faith. So they had this definition of faith. It consists of these three aspects. First of all, it was knowledge. In other words, you have to have some content. You've got to have some object of your faith. Like when you say that, have you ever heard somebody just say, well, I just have faith? Well, what is that? (laughs) Okay, you got faith. Great. It has to have an object. What do you have faith in? You know, wh- what are you telling me you believe in? I just have faith. Okay. All right. So what? Um, there's got to be some basis for the faith. There's got to be content to it. You, know, you need to have faith in something. And that takes us to the next one, because it's not just about faith. There's this idea of assent. Now, let's talk about what this means. Um, It means that you've studied it, you've investigated it, you've thought about it, and you believe it's true. That's assent. This is, okay, I've I've not just, I believe in this. I believe, for example, I believe this ice will hold me up. If I say I believe this ice will hold me up, why? Why? Well, maybe I've measured the ice, and maybe I know it's thick enough that it's going to hold me up. So, for example, <coughs> um, think about, okay, let's keep going. So, now, if you just have the knowledge, and you've got the assent that this is true, what does that qualify you as being according to scriptures? Who else believes in God and believes the demons, yeah, they believe in God. They assent that Christ has been resurrected. That's James 2.19. So that brings you, brings you to the third fiducia that means trust. That you are willing to step out on the ice. You don't just believe it's going to hold you up. You're willing to put your weight on it. So, can you have knowledge and trust without the middle piece? Can you have the knowledge and the trust without having the assent 
So that means you're not really fully convinced. And is that faith going to be what can carry you through in the really, really hard times? That you're not really fully convinced. So think about Thomas for just a minute. Because Thomas is an example of someone who needed that middle piece before he would believe. And he said, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger into the place of the nails and put my hand into his side, he said, I will not believe. That's John 20, 25. Now, does Jesus ever rebuke Thomas for this? No, he doesn't. He never says, he never withholds this from Thomas. Um, doesn't rebuke Thomas. For, and for this need, it, it's satisfied with a demonstration of the evidence. Jesus gives him the, the evidence. And the danger is in not having this aspect of faith is that we're trying to ignore the rational part of us that God gave us. Yeah, he never, like, he freely, I mean, you could argue that, that he freely gives Thomas access to all the evidence on his body that, that everything happened. You know, not only this, but why did Jesus bother appearing to all these people? Could he have just, like, been resurrected and just, you know, went straight up? And he didn't do that. He walked around. He showed people, look, I am fully alive. This isn't a spiritual resurrection. This is a physical resurrection. It's a bodily resurrection. So um, we have a rational faith. We have good reason to believe what it is we believe. Um, And that gives us a faith that can withstand the hard stuff. So, okay. Let's keep going. So that was the reform. Any comments or questions about that? All right. So, sprawl statement here. I can prove many things to a person, but I cannot persuade them of anything. That goes back to what it was Dave said earlier. Um, number three, even if, you can, even if you prove that God does exist, you cannot prove that the God of the Bible is the one true God, right? So, proving a creator is one thing, but what about the God of the Bible? You cannot prove this by the same arguments, but does it lay the groundwork for a theistic worldview? And secondly, establishing common ground may sometimes be necessary before arguing for the God of the Bible. Okay, so it gets us that far, right? Everything we've talked about gets us this far. Um, and, and this narrows the candidates then for like a, deist, a, a deity to a, a monotheistic personal God. And then number four, Everyone already believes he exists, some just deny it. Psalm 14, 1, there's therefore no need to prove it. Well, let's keep going with that. That's the verse, you know, it's the fool that says in his heart there is no God. This may be true, but the degree to which people believe he exists varies, and we can always grow in our faith, and most who believe that God exists live their lives like he does not practical atheists. So do any of us really believe perfectly that God exists? Do we sometimes live like he doesn't exist? When I was about nine years old, I got busted looking at some things I was not supposed to be looking at. Me and some buddies, we found a magazine out in the woods that we opened that thing up, and it it didn't take long to see, you know, I don't think I don't think I should be looking at this. Now, if my mom had been sitting there right beside me, I would not have looked at one single picture in this magazine. But was God present and seeing exactly what I was doing? Yeah. Had he been standing there, would I have looked through this? Well, no. But I lived as though he couldn't do that. So oftentimes we live as these practical atheists, as though he doesn't really exist. You know, it would change our whole view of temptation, I think, if we really believed God is seeing everything that we do. Um, They claim 
to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. I think about how many times I fall into that, that category. All right, the more assured people are that God exists, the more likely they are to live like it, and therefore the arguments are valid for discipleship purposes as much as for evangelistic purposes. If they're talking about God, we've got moral reasons to believe that God exists. All right, comments, questions? Anger. Any jokes? Yeah, I mean, so here's, now, so the question is, are there some people who think they're really Christians, but skip number two. This is, so I would say, yeah, and I could even, you know, I was even thinking about my own life. I think I probably made a first move. I'm just going to talk about my experience for a minute. I know there's a lot going on behind the scenes about the Holy Spirit drawing us to himself. But let me just talk about the experience. I can remember being six years old. And someone in front of the, the classroom, this is the first time I remember hearing the gospel and responding to it. Somebody saying, well, look, you can either, you got a choice right now. You can believe that Jesus died for your sin or you can die and go to hell. Well, I was terrified. Well, who in the world? Well, this isn't much of a choice. <laughs> Clearly, you're the adult in the room here that you've been put in charge. And you're telling me if I don't believe this right now, I'm going to die. And go, okay, well, sign me up. This is a no-brainer, you know. So... Is that assent, really? Is that being compelled by some evidence that, that, that the gospel is true? In other words, and it's not wrong. Um, but, you know, when I get, how many of you responded to the gospel like that as a kid, but then you get 17, 18, maybe 20 years old, and you really start thinking about this thing? It's like, well, wait a second. I think I need a little more to go on than just what this, you know, what I heard in VBS. Now, can a child respond in faith to? Yeah, sure they can. But as you, you can see, as you go along, it doesn't take as much faith when you start considering the actual evidence. As a matter of fact, I can see where it takes very little faith, actually, when you start seeing the evidence, um, when you start thinking about those disciples who died and were tortured to death for their faith. Would they have, would Thomas, and I believe Thomas was the one that went to India and died there, he was speared through. If he thought the whole thing was a gimmick, if he thought that Jesus had just put some, some kind of makeup on to make it look like he had been you know, nailed through his hands and a spear in his side. Do you think he would have gone to his death over this? That doesn't make sense. What, maybe if he was insane, was Thomas insane? Well, there's no evidence that he's insane. So again, you, you just when you start thinking about this, I mean, even creation, is it even... I, it takes so much more faith to believe that some random big bang happened and all of a sudden you've got, you know, you've got a platypus. You've got a giraffe you've got a portuguese man of war is that easier to believe than there's a creator i don't see how so there's something else going on it's not sane to not believe in a creator it's just it's not sane uh, and then you know getting from that to to christ is not it's not a stretch but it takes the Holy Spirit. This, it also takes the work of the Holy Spirit to believe. Yes, Doctor Timmy. Com you, uh, your comment was made that do you think he would have gone to India and gotten speared to death if he really didn't believe? Well, men will die for okay. things that they believe, true. but they may not be true. So here's the question. And the question is, what evidence did he have to believe that it was truly true? Because there are a lot of people who die for things that aren't true at all. Yes. Here's the difference. That's the census. The difference is he had firsthand eyewitness testimony. And these, um, these terrorists that are willing to blow themselves up in the name of Allah are doing it without firsthand evidence or testimony. 
Do they have faith? You better believe they've got faith. But the object of the faith matters. Faith is powerful. Faith can get you out of an addiction. Um, even if it's not faith in God, if you've got faith in something, it can compel you to overcome an addiction. So it's powerful, even if it's, but that's not a saving faith. Does this make sense? The terrorist is motivated by fear. Right, right. Won't get paradise, won't get the 70 virgins. 70, excuse me, 72, 72. Okay, let's, uh, <laughs> so why don't we go ahead and end things. Thank you all. I know, you know what, it gets late. This can be, this can, these, these uh, discussions can get philosophical. Thanks for staying tuned in. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you so much for the evidence that you've given us of yourself. I thank you for everybody um, here tonight. And Lord, I just pray that we would grow in our understanding, but that we would rest more and more knowing that that you've provided so much evidence, Lord. It takes so little faith to trust in you and what you did for us so that we can enjoy um, freedom in what you've provided and peace and joy and everything that comes with it. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for being here. Thanks for tuning in.